Welcome to Ask the Tech Coach, brought to you by the TeacherCast Educational Network. If you are in charge of professional development and looking to build an innovative digital learning experience, this is the podcast for you. Join us each week as we uncover strategies that tech coaches are using to drive their digital transformations one classroom at a time. And now for your host, with over two decades of experience working with tech coaches and edtech companies from all around the world, Jeff Bradbury. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the TeacherCast Educational Network. My name is Jeff Bradbury. Thank you so much for joining us today and making TeacherCast your place for professional development. This is Ask the Tech Coach podcast, episode number 226. And today we have probably one of our more important topics that we've covered in a long time. My question today for you is, what do you do if your school is under emergency? What do you do in a time of crisis? How can ours, how can us as coaches, how, how can we as coaches help our school districts, our principals, our school community become better prepared for when things happen? Doesn't matter if there's a school shooting, a pandemic, an internal crisis, uh, somebody falls in the hallway. How do we make sure that we're all safe? That's going to be the topic today. I've got three great guests on the show today, all to talk about their experience with with crisis, with emergency. And we're going to talk today about how we can prepare our schools, how we can prepare each other, and how we can prepare our communities. I hope you guys are doing okay out there. It has been a great fall already, already into that second marking period. Hope you had a chance also to head on over to askthetechcoach.com. Recently redone the entire website, brand new face, brand new blog post, brand new podcasts, and there's a lot more stuff coming on. So I hope you guys have a chance to check all that stuff out. It's been great seeing how the newsletter has been growing. It's nice seeing how the social media is growing. And if you haven't had a chance to yet, head on over to askthetechcoach.com, scroll down to the bottom and join one of our instructional coaching networks. We've got a great place of more than 1,200 coaches over on Facebook. We've got a LinkedIn version if you want to be more professional. And we've also got one for digital learning leaders over on k12leaders.com. Lots of great stuff for you as an instructional coach and as the calendar is coming to a close and we're getting ready for 2023, we are absolutely just getting started. My first guest today is an associate professor of early childhood and special education. I want to welcome today, Miss Susan Shapiro onto the program. Susan, welcome to Ask the Tech Coach. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for being here. Tell us a little bit more about yourself. What are you doing these days? Well, I just wrote a book, which is called Interpreting COVID-19 Through Turbulence Theory. So that's been really exciting. Uh, I teach at Toro uh, College um, in the Graduate School of Education. Um, and I've been doing a lot of research into crisis. So I'm very excited to talk about it. I'm so excited about this topic. Thanks so much for being here. My next guest is a director in, in faculty development and outreach at a private school, uh, Miss Melissa Jackson. Melissa, how are you today? Welcome to Ask the Tech Coach. Hello. Thank you so much. I'm so excited that you're here today. Tell us a little bit more about yourself. So I am in charge of the professional development for special education teachers here in New York City. I'm also an assist, uh, adjunct assistant professor um, in a graduate program, early childhood special education. And much like Dr. Shapiro, I do a lot of research in the area of school safety, school emergencies for children with disabilities, specifically young children. 
Thanks so much for being here. Looking forward to this great conversation and joining us again on this show. I want to bring on my good friend, Mr. John Miller. John, how are you today? I'm doing great, Jeff, and thanks for inviting me. I'm looking forward to uh, participating in another one of your uh, podcasts. The last one was was really good. I enjoyed being here, and um, I'm looking forward to hearing what these uh, what these other educators have to say. Uh, John, you and I have a, a history together of doing some great things in school districts. Tell us a little bit about your background here, because you know, as I mentioned at the top of the show, we're talking all about schools, crisis, keeping people safe, making sure that everything is where it needs to be. Tell us a little bit about your background in education. Uh, thanks, Jeff. Um, so I come from a different angle than the other two educators do, um, much more on a practical side, I, I would say. Um, I was in law enforcement for 31 years. I retired as a police captain um, through a good part of my uh, police and uh, training and, and time. I was involved with school security from the protection side, working with the school district. Uh, when I retired, I started working for a regional school district in northern New Jersey. Um, I worked there for six years, and uh, I am now currently a, a director of emergency management and security for a uh, hospital that is in the northern New Jersey area. Thank you all for being here. This is obviously a, a very important topic for educators, for coaches, for, for anybody, parents included with all of this stuff. Let's just open the door here and start talking about this. You know, the concept of schools being in crisis, the concept of schools being prepared. Every single week we turn on the television and we see something in the news. Are our schools prepared for crisis, whether that be internal, external, community, medical. Melissa, I see you're shaking your head on this one. What do you think globally or even locally where you are? Are our schools prepared for the unknown? I think it depends on how you define prepared, right? Some schools have these elaborate plans, right? But they're not necessarily training everybody in the building or training um, the children um, to respond as well. Some schools do practice with private companies and they, they involve local law enforcement and they practice, practice, practice drills. But the reality of it is when a shooting happens, right, it's not going to happen the exact same way that a drill happens. So when we're thinking about schools being prepared, teachers being prepared, administrators, children being prepared, I don't think we can fully say that we are prepared for a variety of reasons. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think that that's an interesting point is about always being prepared for the last emergency. And I think what we really need to think about is a different kind of mindset for educators, uh, for training teachers and training administrators um, when it comes to dealing with crisis. So, you know, during 9-11, um, no one was expecting what was going on. And, and part of my research was what happened in daycare centers that were in close proximity uh, to the World Trade Center. And no one had prepared for it, but some centers came out just, they, they could handle it. They were able to roll with the punches. They had community outreach. Um, people knew that they were there. One of the uh, schools that I studied, um, they, uh, the, the fire department, they had just been to the fire department. The fire department knew they were there. They had visited the local police department. They knew they were there. And so the outreach was tremendous as the towers were falling. People knew we got to get the daycare center out of there. We got to get the kids out. Um, and so 
by preparing people for sort of the unexpected, getting them in that mindset of what do we do when crisis occurs, I think they're going to be a lot more successful. And I, I have to agree, Dr. Shapiro's right on the money here. It's getting the education out to the to the faculty and the staff, having a paper plan uh, on a, in a binder that's sitting on a shelf doesn't do you any good. It's they, they need to know what to do. They need to know how to react in a, a multitude of circumstances and they need to know where they need to go. The teachers will follow whatever instruction that they're giving. The students will follow that teacher. They're looking up to the teacher for the, the education, uh, for the direction that the teacher is going to uh, give them. We can't train them for every possible circumstance like melissa said it's it, there's just so much out there um but we can give them the basics to use and that's where um i i i think support from uh, a very a, a, a lot of different um sources come in here so one of the things that we need to be able to do is to take the um the plans that we have in writing on in that binder and put it in an accessible means for the teacher how can they best get that information out to them and i think some of that is through technology how so so we need to take the plans and bring them from um a a, a paper document to a sorry from a paper document to a live document so that these um, teachers can look at it if they move from one section to another from one building to another all they have to do is pick up their phone and look at it and they can have the information that they need critical information at that moment but jonathan i wonder if the plans themselves are so static that teachers have a hard time when they don't follow the, the sort of menu of how crisis is going to happen, because mm -hmm. I know that we had a we have fire drills. We mm -hmm. have, um, you know, lockdown drills. We have active shooter drills for kids. But I know, uh, Dr. Jackson, your work is on a lot of this. But, you know, are, are the kids really going to know how to react? Are the teachers really going to know how to react? Or do we want to have them in more of a mindset of how do we deal with crisis? What's the best way for teachers to be prepared for the unexpected? And what's more of a global way of making sure that everyone's safe? I so think, yeah. That might sound a little esoteric, but what I mean is building those supports into the school right from the beginning. It's, I believe it's having the basics. So if you give mm -hmm. the teachers what they need um, for a fire drill, for a lockdown drill, for a shelter in place, bomb threat, whatever it may be, Give them the basics, but give them the ability to adjust it as necessary. Yeah. Um, so that um, if the plan is we're going to lock down in our classroom, but if you had the ability to run to a safe location, um, that may be the the best alternative for you. Um, but you at least have your basics in place, and they need well, to know what those and be comfortable with those. Let's talk a little bit about that, because, John, as a law enforcement person, you train and train and train and you, you just become naturalized to when something happens, this is how you react. And we've had these conversations as a teacher. We do, if we're lucky, two drills a month and it lasts all of 10 minutes at that mm -hmm. moment. And all we get was, you know, we get good 
bad fix. We don't get, okay, let's fix and try it again immediately. And between the fire drills and the, 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 the shelter in places and the, all of those different things, how can a teacher or any employee know exactly what to do when we only have maybe 10 minutes a month to really be thinking about this? I think what what John said was really what Jonathan said was really interesting about giving teachers the ability to make decisions, because I think sometimes we get so caught up in what's going on with our written drills that when you have a situation, they're going to have to figure out how to react and they're going to have to feel empowered enough that they know if there's an active shooter, they're locking down with the kids and the kids are screaming best to get those kids out of there. And they have to feel they're empowered enough to be able to say, I'm going to make this decision right now. We're taking the kids out. Well, I think we've also run into some big changes in the environment. Um, In New Jersey, the law has been very, very direct. You will lock down. You will follow the the plans that the the state, the DOE has set forth. And that's really good. And and the plans are very effective. Um, But I think we've also kind of learned especially with some of the more recent school shootings, that there have been um, vulnerabilities both on the terms of the school districts and of the responding law enforcement agencies who have come in. Um, And now parents have have kind of gone to a different extreme and they're taking uh, measures on their own. Um, They're not waiting for law enforcement to make the scene safe. They're trying to go in and... um, Rescue, as it may be, their, their students, um, their, their children on their own. And I think that's become uh, uh, more of the norm now. It puts a lot of people at risk. I don't advocate that um, because most of these law enforcement agencies train very, very hard and uh, are very, very responsive um, to whatever circumstance that they have. I think it's important also when we're thinking about training our teachers, thinking about not only training them on how to respond to a lockdown, a fire drill, a mudslide, um, any of that, but also training them on how to teach their learners and the various learners in our schools. You know, some kids are going to be able to follow directions and be flexible and transition and stay quiet for five minutes to two hours. Some kids will not be able to to do that, right? So training our teachers, especially our special education teachers, to prioritize what they're teaching throughout the year. Think about the skills that you need during a lockdown. You need to follow multiple step directions, be flexible and transition, stay quiet, occupy yourself for a while. How can we work on some of those executive function goals throughout the school year as not just part of the lockdown drill? I think there's two pieces in there, the teacher training and then training the teachers to teach. Mm -hmm. And it's also, you know, equipment is very important. Um, You know, working in early childhood, we were dealing with babies and trying to get babies out of a building you know, during a fire drill was extremely problematic and difficult. Um, And so we invested in the fire cribs, but how many babies can you put into a fire crib and then roll it out of the building Mm -hmm. um, without it collapsing and causing more of an issue? So really having the resources and being able to use the resources um, effectively and having practice with them as well. I think one of the uh, other aspects is, uh, and I think, Dr. Jackson, you, you touched on it, was the special learner. 
um, the autistic child who, when you're given instruction, whether it's law enforcement coming in and being giving commands, a fire alarm going off, um, how is that individual reacting? And uh, we all know because we've, we've worked with it, you more so than certainly I have, but it, it requires a special, whether it's headphones or some other means to, to make that child feel more comfortable because they've been ripped out of their environment that they, they, they react well to and that they've become now startled and they're not going to listen to law enforcement instructions. They're, they may go running right towards that law enforcement officer because that child has been told that person's your friend. Meanwhile, the uh, law enforcement wants nothing to do with it they have a mission that they're, they're trying to accomplish here. Um, so it's very, very difficult. Um, there were some circumstances because as, as Jeff can attest to, we had a, a, a large special needs population in the school and um, we would have to make certain accommodations for those kids, even though it went against everything that we wanted to do. It was in the best interest of the child that, that we did that. Um, so they would get a little heads up of, of a drill coming. So maybe they put headphones on or gave them some advanced warning. And those teachers need to know how to react as well. They may be outside on the playground with the student. Um, do I bring the, the student inside? Do we, do we run away? Um, we also had a, a, a pretty large um, pre-K program, not babies, but the pre-K. How do you walk with those children if there is a, an evacuation? You know, they can't walk very quickly um so those all there's a lot of there's a lot of moving parts to it but there's also the need for the constant education beyond what 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 jeff had said it's it needs to be in in my opinion constantly reinforced and it's difficult there are so many um requirements that are pushed on the the faculty and the staff of each school um, and now we're adding many more now we're also having you be trained for a critical event. You, you signed up to be a teacher, not to run fire drills or to evacuate students. But all these things come into play here. So they need the education on it. Let, let's dive into that. If you are coming into a school building, John, like you have, how do you start from scratch to put together a safety plan for a school, a building, a daycare. What are some of the things that educational leaders need to be thinking about when they're putting this together? What are some of the tools that they need to have a around them? Maps, blueprints, whatever it happens to be. Where do you start? And how do you go from that to, okay, now I'm going to train my staff? Well, I think it's taking a really close look at your community. So it's not just making the assumption that everyone is in a K through 12 school, that everyone is going to be able to be able-bodied enough to walk with the children outside of the school, getting to know your teachers, getting to know the community around, and taking a good look at your students. And you're going to have to tailor it to the children that and the, and the community um, that's within the schools. So it's not a one-size-fits-all. Mm-hmm. It's it's first looking at the culture and climate of the school. Exactly what you're saying. How what what are the needs of that particular building? Um, yes, you can do a blanket plan, but you have to tailor it towards you know any one particular building. We had one that had a much higher um, uh, population of autistic children, so there were special uh, needs that we needed to have for that one particular school. Um, 
and then we need to to get that message out to everybody. So yes, maps are are great, but again, they they're required. We need to have fire drill exit plans, um, but we need to make sure that they know the teachers know what to do. Students will follow. Um, the teachers have to be well educated, and that may mean a um, uh, an orient, uh, new teacher orientation. It may be a uh, periodic faculty meeting so you can get in front of the, the, the faculty and the staff and the administration so that they know what's required. Um, I, a lot of I'm not areas. sure if the children will always follow, though. It depends on the age group because when we're talking early childhood and toddlers and babies, mm -hmm. especially kids with special needs, mm -hmm. they may not follow and they have to know that in advance. That's, so what's the plan? And, yeah. you know, I had also worked in a daycare where we had no walls and the rooms were these half walls. Um, so when we had to do an active shooter drill, we actually had to put the babies into a freight elevator and bring the freight elevator down. So we had to think outside the box, knowing that we didn't have the ability to do what every other school was able to do. Mm -hmm. And did you did you practice that with we, the children? We did. Oh, we wow. did. And um, they would certainly not hide from anyone. Everyone would know they were in a freight elevator for sure. But at least it gave us some place to take the children. And that's smart. It's smart pre-planning. Um, I commend you for that. I, I think that's a, a great way to, to think on all these situations. Um, you know, it, it one of the the lectures that I, I listened to was Michelle Gay, um, Sandy Hook. And I, I listened to her. She presented to an association I was with. Um, and when the kids had come out of the school, fire alarm had activated um, and they walked right past the front of the school because that was the route that they were told that they have to take every time there's a fire drill. This is the way you go. There was no consideration for there. They were on their own. These these young children. Um, there was no consideration for anything beyond that. Um, and so the children also need to know if there's danger here, don't go this way. Um, it, it's a lot. Your, your situation is completely unique with, the, with infants. That's, that's completely um, a very difficult situation to look at. I think when it comes to implementing these plans, training our teachers, we need to practice, practice, practice. I think there are some views out there, right, that we should not practice this, especially in early childhood, early childhood special education. But what we do know is practice does help aid in supporting kids to gain these skills, to be able to follow these multiple step directions, respond mm -hmm. during these crises. I think it's important that we practice with the teachers the teacher assistants, there's paraprofessionals in classrooms. What about the speech and language pathologists, OTs? Everybody um, within the school building needs to be trained, and that includes the children. You know, how do we teach children to respond to an active shooter in a developmentally appropriate way? It's really, really hard. I can imagine Dr. Shapiro trying to teach infants going into a freight elevator, how hard that was, right? But Going back to what I was saying before, if we practice these kind of overarching skills that can lend themselves to the scenarios and we teach our teachers to teach those, um, I think that can go a long way. Is there anything coming down the pipe in Congress that says we should be doing this more often? Uh, John, correct me. Is the, is the law twice a month? And, you know, if we are going to be needing to train and train it, 
Should it be once a week? I mean, what what is happening in not the education world that's maybe pushing down that says, should we be doing these things? Because I'm still going to jump back and say, as a teacher, I'm only concerned about this for 10 minutes a month when I when the bell goes off. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, obviously, it's always in the back of my mind as somebody who's traveling to 25 buildings. I mean, even the other day and I was talking to John about this, too. I, I made sure that all of my coaches were um imported into raptor in all of their buildings and for me that was my way of keeping my people safe that way the system knew who they were and where they are is there anything that's that's being talked about in law or in congress or wherever that says we should be doing this more than twice a month or we need to have a dedicated pd day for the kids where a half a day maybe yeah twice a year is just building safety or crisis safety In New Jersey, it's one fire drill. It's one school security drill every month. Um, I I think it's very difficult if you tried to go beyond that because there are so many uh, requirements that every district has that they're trying to fit in there um, and to take uh, a lot more time away from the educational side of it to do these drills, to do this education is is difficult. Um, I tried to get out in front of the students at least in the beginning of every school year, all the different grade levels, grade, grade appropriate education. You know, most of the kids, once they get into the high school, they look at it and they're like, this is a, uh, this is just a waste of time. This is ridiculous. But in New Jersey, uh, I believe it was 2016, we had a, uh, a shooting at one of the malls and um, there were very heroic kids who pulled adults into their stores that they were working at because they had received this basic training in their schools because they knew what to do for a lockdown. And so they took what they learned at school and they said, wow, this is real life. I need no, we need to go into lockdown. And they took the appropriate action. So it, it works. I think they are learning from this. I think not everybody takes it seriously because there's a lot of attitude of it's not going to happen here. Um, And for the most part, they're right. But as we've seen time and time again throughout the country, whether it's a mall, whether it's a church, um, a supermarket, it does happen. And it happens in a small suburban community or in in a large urban environment. It doesn't it it does not have any prejudice about where it's going. Um, and so the, the training is important. I don't see it going beyond at this point, uh, regulatory manner uh, going beyond where we're at. But, um, you know, it's a big push for me. I, I'm a big advocate of this, even though I'm in a different environment. I am still teaching um, right now in the way I had um, for the the uh, the staff of the hospitals. Um, this is so important today. It, it's an interesting thing to think about. And, and you know, even this conversation here is getting me thinking, you know, I one of the things that I do is new employee orientation. Every single week we're bringing in half dozen, 10 people a week. And let's say tomorrow something happens in a school. There's a lot of new educators in these buildings that mm-hmm. don't have the background, yes. don't have the training. What happens? And you know, standing up and, and, and John, I've seen you do this, you know, you, you come to a new employee orientation and go, here's the rules. It's not preparing, right? I mean, like you have to, you do have to have some of that hands-on stuff mm-hmm. to make sure that everybody 
is going on. I, I, I want to pick up on something that everybody had said, which is about the community. Can, can we kind of share what are the guidelines for letting your community go, whether you're be at a daycare or a K-12 building or a high school, whatever it happens to be, what are some of the things that you can't say to parents? What are some of the things you should be saying to parents and and I again I keep saying this is the stuff that John and I've been talking about, but what can you make available to parents? I mean, obviously parents need to know that there is a plan, but you can't show them the map. So, what are the guidelines for working with the community and and showing off things to the community? Well, I think parents have to know that they're going to eventually hear from you, um, and be given some type of a timeline, even if it's not necessarily something you can stick to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm a parent, and I can't imagine if there was something going on in the school and I couldn't find out information. I, I mean, I would. I think the same thing would be going through my head: is jump on the, the the train and get there as fast as I can. So there has to be a way that we make parents feel that they're empowered in this process, while at the same time, um, put the kids n- number one. Make sure that the you know the kids and the safety of the kids and the teachers is is really what it's all about. We'll communicate when we can. That's a buildup of trust, um, you know, and that takes a long time to create those school. Uh, home partnerships where parents can trust enough that we are going to tell you what's happening as soon as we are able. I think communication is, is absolutely key. And then when it comes just speaking from the early childhood special education perspective, when we can administrators, teachers should be working on some of those individualized aspects that you were talking about, John, the headphones, having an activity the child could do for their children with special needs that are in their classrooms. From the get-go, you you have a child in your classroom in September, you're starting to do your emergency planning and practice. Talk to the families about what the child likes to do. Hey, parent, if your child has to wait for a really long time somewhere, a doctor's office, what do you do? We can gain some really great insight to provide some of that individualization. A parent that I spoke to once let me know that their child has a jar of frosting in the classroom in the event that there's a lockdown. Their child has a hard time staying quiet and waiting for a long period of time. But given a jar of frosting, they will take little bites for as long as you know it takes them to, to finish it. And some people say, okay, you're gonna let a child eat a jar of frosting. In the event of an emergency, I think the frosting would be the better choice, right? It's, it's being innovative, <laughs> yeah. I think that I think you're being innovative with that and, and it does. Um, the communication side is critical. I, I echo what everybody has just said. Part of the, uh, the problem is the misinformation so especially as you get into middle school, high school, these uh, students are, are, are communicating with their parents. They're live streaming. Um, they're putting Instagram uh, videos out on what's going on and, and their reactions within the school. The, the, before the, the administration of the school has a minute to draft something to get out to parents, the kids have already posted it all over the place. Um, so it, it may be accurate and it, it may be uh, totally uh, inaccurate just from their perspective. Um, what somebody may believe is gunshots may have been something that just fell over as they were you know, exiting a room. Um, so it, it's very hard to say. We need to have that trust 
we need to be able to say our administration, our school resource officers, um, our teachers have been trained. They know what to do. Um, and, and I know, Jeff, part of this is to talk about the technology of it. Um, there are a lot of tech, technological uh, tools that are out there. Um, you mentioned Raptor, which is a visitor access management system. But there are um, a lot of different notification tools that um, that are you know, can notify parents, can notify the, the teachers, they notify the, the police departments right away. So, um, you know, while the technology is great, it really, in, in many ways, it does just come down to this is, we need to have the basics. The teachers know need to know what to do. The staff need to be able to support whatever's going on. Um, start with your basics. Where is the line when it comes to sending out information? right on our website we have a plan this is what the plan is we'll call you um I, I keep saying this again but you know john and i we were talking about clearly you can't put the roadmap that says what you know where will the kids be walking to get from point a to the shelter school but where what what can be said to the parents what shouldn't be said well i think if you tell them ahead of time you, you sort of negate the, the effectiveness of the um, of the drills. I mean, you're really not supposed to tell parents when these things are occurring. At the same time, parents get really upset when they don't know, especially with early childhood and kids with special needs. They get really, really angry when they're not told ahead of time about these drills. Um, and so it's it's not it's it's sort of a lose lose proposition, but uh, I once again I go back to building those partnerships because the more that they trust you, the more they're going to 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 think that you're doing it in the best interest of the kids and the best interest of the school, and that's really what's important and critical. It's a hard one, right? Because some you aren't really supposed to tell the students or the parents when it's going to happen. And it's, mm -hmm. it's a shock, right? Um, for everyone involved. I think also when you can be transparent about the verbiage that you're using with the children or the students, right? So if you're calling the drill a lockdown drill, an active shooter drill, um, in early childhood, are you calling it the big bad wolf drill? If you're calling it something like that, making sure that the parents know. So when their kid comes home and says, oh, we did the big bad wolf, a man had a gun. Um, that they know that what you're talking about and they're not in shock when you can. When it comes to trust, and I, I want to pick this up because I think uh, some, many of you had mentioned it already. Where are we in this country with trust when it comes to law enforcement helping work? So, you know, one of you had even mentioned, you know, lots of parents are going to run into the school to pick up their kid if they need to, because that's what they that's what the parent needs to do um, in the shadow or in the wake of Texas. Does anybody want to comment on where are we with trusting those who are, are being empowered to keep us safe when there is a crisis that's happening in our schools? Um, many years ago, um we did a, uh, a, a, a town hall forum in the police department where I, I had worked um, at the school. Um, I was representing the police there, but we had the educators there. Part of our, our, our school crisis committee was there. Um, and we invited everybody to come in and to, to learn what we felt comfortable educating them about. Um, I think we had more people from the local uh, press there then we had parents who were concerned and that was it was sad because we were there to to 
you know, take that opportunity to say, this is the measures we're doing to keep your kids safe. Um, we would go to back to school nights. Um, again, I would represent the police department there. Um, and a member of the school's uh, team would be with me. And a few parents would come over and talk to us. Um, again, this is probably eight years ago or so. Um, has things changed? Yeah, dramatically. Um, and I think for the most part, there is there is great trust in, in the law enforcement partners. Um, there's unfortunate circumstances, and, and we saw what happened, um, that trust is lost. And it's very difficult to build that trust back up again. Um, and that becomes educating again, getting doing what you can to get parents uh, educated on what's going on in your school, giving them some basics of what will be done for a drill. These are the drills that we do. This is how often this is what your child will be exposed to. Um, you know, you cannot opt out of it. Yes, if you have special needs, we're going to work with you um, to address those needs um, because that's important. And then there are a lot of those needs there. Um, and they need to be done at different times because uh, you had mentioned about, you know, paras and, and the aides that are there. Uh, a lockdown drill occurring during a elementary school lunch period is very different than when in a classroom or at, at changing uh, times. So, you know, the, the, the atmosphere needs to be looked at. The trust needs to be rebuilt again. Um, and we need to, you know, keep moving forward with this. I absolutely agree. And you hit the nail on the head that it needs to be rebuilt. And I think also when we think about building those partnerships again, involving families in this even more, even if we can train them and give them some of the basics of how to respond if this happens in the community, because honestly, that's happening too. It can happen at the supermarket, at mm -hmm. the mall, et cetera. So let's just start from, from scratch. And it, and it can't happen when the actual emergency happens. That's not when you start building these relationships. It has to happen ahead of time Absolutely. so that they can depend on the, the people who are there to protect their kids. As this show is designed for instructional coaches, people who get a chance to not you know, necessarily be in one classroom, but in all classrooms, instructional coaches get a chance to work with our uh, school safety resource officers, our principals, our paras. We are the ones that run all around the building what can coaches do to support law enforcement, school resource officers, our principals, our administration? What are some of the things that we can be doing to help keep our buildings safe, to help keep our staff and children safe, um, either A, when the crisis happens, or B, in helping to prepare? And, and John, please feel free to you know include some of the stuff that you and I have worked on because we've done a lot of stuff in here. But how can we as coaches help support our staff, students, and administration to either to prepare or for when something actually is happening? I think creating a timeline is going to be very important so that, you know, you start to work with law enforcement, you're working with the teachers in the school, you're working with administration to come up with a timeline so that these things are introduced throughout the year so that people know how many um, so that we already have on schedule that the parents will get to meet the, the safety officers or the officers coming into the school, that they'll know how many drills will occur during the course of the year so that the communication is already there with things like Remind or any type of um, communication technology that may be used so that you help everyone prepare for moving forward, for creating this timeline and setting up communications. 
I think that's a huge point. And I think looking at preparing the teachers, um, also preparing as we were talking about the paraprofessionals, the, the school work, the cafeteria workers, all of that. Uh, John, you were talking about making the information accessible. Sometimes those paraprofessionals, cafeteria workers, they're only there for a certain shift. They aren't paid for prep time after, so they're not coming to the PD, right? Maybe they maybe they will, um, but maybe they won't, right? So also having multiple modalities of training everybody, I think, is a crucial part. So having the practice, having the plan written out, illustrated, accessible through whatever app or Google Classroom you're using, having visuals associated with it, if you can, on a lanyard, things like that. And John, I see you shaking your head about that. Yeah. Uh, the different ways are important. I came into this, and, and I think this is the, the tech coach side of it. I came into the schools, I, I would have to say, kind of old school. Um, I was looking for a flip chart. We put it on the wall that's right there so you can you can see it. Um, and in working with, with Jeff as, as my tech coach, he's like, let's take that and let's put that into a Google site. Let's recreate it here. What's your information? So I would write my information. We started something very small. It grew exponentially. And, um, what I created has been, um, so well received. And, um, when I've shown it to, uh, individuals at the state level, they were absolutely amazed by the the detail of video, a short video of something. Um, but it worked so, so well. And if I, because of the way it was set up, I could do it mobily. So if I had to move those children um, from one building to another and I didn't know where to go, um, all I had to do was go to the evacuation page, look at that school find where I needed to go. The map was there. Um, now, this is all assuming that, you know, your web, uh, your cell service is not overwhelmed, um, but it could be interactive map so that it kind of knew where you were and could tell you which direction you were, you had to head to to get to that alternate uh, location. Um, huge, huge pluses. And, and without the tech coach, I would have not even approached this. So, you know, my aspect of it is here's my idea. How do I put that into a usable format that I gave it to the tech coach? Jeff, make uh, it happen. Essentially, when we put the site together, in my mind, I was pretending that I was building a mobile app. I wasn't building a website. I was building something with huge buttons. So that way on a phone, you could click on an icon and then get to the next place and click on a big icon and get to the next place. So that way you're not scrolling through like text menus while you know emergencies are happening. It was something that was very easy. And if you're out there going, how do I help out my school? How do I help out my school resource officer? I think the easiest answer is ask what can you do? Um, that's how John and I started our friendship is what do you need? Or, Hey, I see you're doing this. How can I be a part of this? I want to make sure my school is safe. And from there grew all of these different plans. And, you know, as instructional coaches, we are the ones that are, that are sitting there with, you know, the secrets to how to make the spreadsheets and the Google docs and the websites and all that stuff yeah. offer Offer your nurse. How do you make how how do you make a resource for everybody to battle the pandemic or to you know whatever it happens to be? Just going up to these people and asking. Our role is teacher training. That doesn't just mean classroom teachers. That means everybody on the on the roster needs our support, needs our help, needs something that we have. Offer it to them. 
And I'm so glad that John and I had a chance to do that. And anybody else out there, you know, reach out to these people and just say, what can I do to support you? It's no different than walking into fifth grade and saying, what are some of your pain points? How can I fix that? How can I help make the school district a little bit safer? Guys, I want to say thank you. I mean, I, I'd love to call this part one of a longer show and, and do this and maybe even expand the, the, the panel here. Melissa, let me give you, you know, last round here. What advice do you have for anybody in a coaching position, in a leadership position on this topic? What can we be thinking about as we wrap up our show today? I think it's really important. Administrators, coaches, train your teachers, train, train everybody in the school building not only train them how to respond to the drill, but also how to teach children in their classrooms to respond to those drills, collaborate with, with the families. Um, and I think working on those foundational skills throughout the year with all students would be beneficial for everybody involved and would transcend out even outside of lockdown drills and emergency situations. Um, I think practice, 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 practice with general education students, practice with students with IEPs, practice with everybody, teachers separately, children separately, everybody together. Um, I think that needs to happen. Susan, what do you think? Les? I think that we need um, as coaches to help people think about the larger community how to open up uh, the, the discussion so that it's not just involving the schools, but help them to think of the resources that the school has in the immediate area, in the community, um, and how they can rely on those uh, during times of crisis. John, as we prepare for the next big thing in educational safety and security, what's always on the back of your mind as a school resource officer, as a, as a law enforcement professional? What should... It, coaches and leaders be thinking about to make sure that the next opportunity for a crisis is not in their own schools? I think a huge part of this is the the documents need to be up to date. They need to be current. Uh, a, a live working document is going to be better than your paper document. Um, so that way you mentioned the pandemic. Um, that changed the way we did a lot of our lockdown drills. Um, there may be something else around the corner, whether it's evacuation because of heavy snow on a roof and we have to move students. Um, and they need to be able to look at that. And we need to be able to change that document to to fit the need as as we can. Um, so be, you know, it's it's difficult, uh, you know. The size of the buildings matter. The, you know, we have, I, I, I know, been in schools where you have, you know, three, 4,000 students in a high school. Um, it's difficult for them to, to pivot. Um, but we have to be able to make those changes. We have to be able to look at the circumstances that we're in today, make a change, and keep it going. Keep educating. Everything that both of the other two panelists have said here is, I, I, I agree 100% with. Um, we're, we're constantly reinventing it. And I think that also the tech coaches, they're, they're, they need to work with you to help make sure that it's kept current. If it's one thing that we talk about on this show, it's, you know, the role of the instructional coach is not just guide on the side in the classroom. You are, if anything else, an educational leader in your building. Take the time to go 
meet your school resource officer, get a chance to meet with your principal, your administration team, ask them the questions. What happens during a lockdown from your point of view? What do you need to do? You never know when something's going to happen and maybe they're not in the building and you're somebody that can step up to the plate and make sure that your teachers, staff, and students are available and where they need to be. So if you have any questions about this, please feel free to reach out. Uh, Like I said earlier, I would love to do this as a part one of several parts. This is such an important topic. And if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out over on askthetechcoach.com. This is going to be episode number 226. We would love to get some feedback. And if this is a topic that's good for you, we would love to have you as a guest on here. Uh, Melissa, where do we go to find out more about the great things that you're doing? How do we get in touch with you? Um, You can uh, email me at mismeljackson at gmail.com. And check out some of my research that will hopefully be published soon. Uh, but I have a chapter in Dr. Shapiro's uh, most recent book. Dr. Shapiro, where can we learn more about the great things you're doing? Um, you can email me at susanhshapiro at gmail.com. Um, and you can look for my book. John, how do we get in touch with you if you need anything? Um, I've just started uh, a Miller Consulting uh, group. So I uh, am out doing... Um, school security consulting evaluations and so on. Um, So uh, I uh, will soon have my uh, email out there. So I'll provide that to you at some point, Jeff. We'll make sure that we have links to all this great stuff and uh, Dr. Shapiro's book on our links. Of course, this is going to be episode number 226. And one more time, guys, thank you. If this show meant anything to you, hit that like button, hit that subscribe button, and please share this with your friends. On behalf of Melissa, Susan, and John, and everybody here in the TeacherCast Educational Network, my name is Jeff Bradbury, reminding you guys to keep up the great work in your classroom and continue sharing your passions with your students. You've been listening to Ask the Tech Coach, hosted by Jeff Bradbury of the TeacherCast Educational Network. Please reach out to the show with all of your questions on Twitter at Ask the Tech Coach or online at www.askthetechcoach.com. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss any future episodes. And please take a moment to write a review in the App Store.